food for thought. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Albert Einstein. As I cycled to today's allocated grid square, down country roads, over a dual carriageway, around a housing estate, through some villages, past an orchard, a quarry and lots of farmed fields, I pondered this ordinary mix of features I generally took for granted on my map. How does it compare to yours? How has it changed over time? And what impact does the way we use land in our neighbourhoods have on the planet? It's hard to grasp the proportions of things that make up our country, and I hoped bumbling around my map would help. The official breakdown is that 28% of Britain is pasture, 26% arable, 9% peat bog, 7% moorland, 6% grassland, 5% coniferous forest, 4.9% homes and gardens, and so on. On a global scale, the numbers are quite different. 71% of the planet's surface is ocean, for starters. Not particularly habitable unless you're in a rowing boat with a supply of dehydrated food and having given that a try for 3,000 miles, I can't recommend it as a barrel of laughs. That leaves 29% of the planet, of which almost a third is glaciers and barren land such as deserts, salt flats, rocks and beaches. The remaining area is all that we have to live on and share with nature. Only 1% of this area is built up housing and infrastructure, a statistic that filled me with optimism. I often feel despondent that the world is disappearing beneath a crust of concrete. On a global scale, 8 billion of us take up a reassuringly small amount of space. World population is set to peak at around 10.4 billion in 2086, before declining slowly to a new equilibrium. Population size alone is not going to be the long-term catastrophe some fear it to be. Urban living is also, potentially, the most environmentally friendly way for most of us to live, as it requires fewer resources and less power and space per person. Freshwater takes up another 1% of space. 14% is shrubland and 38% is forest. But I was stunned to learn that the remaining 46% is used for agriculture. We use almost half of the only known habitable land in the universe to make our lunch. My optimism about humans not taking up much space was crushed. Food production not only takes up a staggeringly vast proportion of the earth, but it also exacts a devastating toll. What we eat and how we produce it is integral to climate change, water and pollution crises and the runaway destruction of nature. I was astonished to learn all this and then did my best to ignore it for as long as possible. I had to read a lot of books about farming, food and climate change before I was reluctantly compelled to address the contents of my supermarket trolley. To say there are terrible problems with our food and farming systems is not a complaint against farmers especially not against nature-friendly farms using methods that champion sustainability and biodiversity. 
but farming has industrialised since the Second World War. The Green Revolution dramatically increased yields and the world now produces enough calories to feed 10 billion people. Farms had to become ever more efficient to stay afloat at the mercy of government policies and competitive supermarket contracts. Supermarkets demand low prices from farmers and we consumers cheerfully gobble up the cheap food with little concern for or understanding of how unsustainable industrial agriculture has become. British families have gone from spending 35% of household income on food in 1945 to just 10% today, though the lowest income families pay proportionately more, while the number of calories consumed worldwide has increased. Britain is the most overweight country in Europe. We eat up to 50% more calories than we realise, and 80% of adults are predicted to be overweight or obese by 2060. To try to keep vaguely within the themes of this book, I'll leave aside the weird ingredients in processed food. The xanthan gum in ice cream comes from a slime that bacteria produce to allow them to cling to surfaces, for example. I'll leave aside the health crisis of excessive cheap calories, type 2 diabetes, colon cancer, cardiac, respiratory and liver diseases, etc. And I'll leave aside the cruelty involved in industrial farming. China's 26-storey pig skyscrapers slaughtering a million pigs a year. The British poultry farm with 1.7 million birds crammed inside. The egg industry gassing or crushing unneeded male chicks, etc. I will stick to just three ways in which farming directly affects nature and the planet. Emissions, pollutions and land use. I don't live on the coast, so there are no marine explorations on my map, but eating seafood is also often terrible for the environment, with overfishing being a critical problem, fish farms causing pollution, trawling for prawns generating wasteful bycatch, and 92% of the oceans being unprotected. Agriculture and the food system account for more than a fifth of all greenhouse gas emissions responsible for global warming. While there are many benefits to eating local food, what we eat dictates our environmental food footprint far more than where it comes from. Meat and dairy products tend to emit more greenhouse gases than plant-based food, with beef, lamb, cheese and milk being the worst offenders by far per unit of protein produced. British cattle emissions are below the global average per cow, but the methane emissions of the world's 15 largest meat and dairy companies are higher than those of entire countries such as Canada or Australia, and equivalent to more than 80% of the EU's entire methane footprint. Today, 60% of the mammals on Earth, by weight, are livestock. Humans account for 36%, and wild mammals make up just 4%. The number of chickens has trebled since 1990 to more than 34 billion. 
Our human population is growing at 1% a year, while livestock is increasing at 2.4%. Global average meat consumption per year is 43 kilograms and rising towards Britain's 82 kilograms, which is equivalent to eating me once a year. Industrial agriculture is also responsible for loss of habitat, soil degradation and the pollution of 60% of Britain's failing rivers with animal effluent and chemicals. Take the River Wye as a single example. Two-thirds of it faces ecological crisis caused by runoff from 44 million chickens crammed into sheds along the river. Its once pristine clear water, home to fish and wildlife and held dear by swimmers and kayakers, is now little more than a slimy drain. Our current global food system takes up an area of land equivalent to all the Americas, plus China, plus Southeast Asia. It's no wonder there's little space for wildlife. We would need to farm double that area if the whole world adopted a British diet, and the planet is literally not big enough to provide everyone with an American diet. Of all this vast area, 80% is farmed for beef and dairy production, much of it via the inefficient process of growing crops to feed to cattle, which then feed us. This is also the biggest global contributor to deforestation and habitat loss. The expansion of pasture land to raise cattle is responsible for 41% of tropical deforestation. If everyone became vegan, it could free up an area of land the size of the USA, China, Australia and Europe combined, feeding the world while also reducing farmland by up to 75%. That is an astounding amount of space that could be given back to nature and carbon-absorbing wilderness. The scenario is hypothetical, of course, and there's plenty of small print for people to argue over about farming animals, e.g. issues of fertiliser use and distribution, local employment, the importance of a single cow for subsistence farmers, the benefits of grazing winter cover crops on arable fields, the biodiversity of having both grasslands and woodlands in rewilding areas, and animals' role in that, etc., etc. But perhaps the sheer scale of land currently devoted to livestock, on top of all their greenhouse gases and pollution, could be food for thought the next time we contemplate a cheeseburger. To fix the environmental disaster of industrial farming, we need to do three things. Change what we eat, change how we farm, and change the way we support farmers. I'd begun today's grid square by nosing around a farm shop selling pasture-for-life meat. The Pasture-Fed Livestock Association promotes a system whereby animals only eat grass and forage crops, producing meat that is healthier, tastier and generally less harmful to the planet than the more familiar meat labelled grass-fed, which means only that the animals eat some grass but could spend most of their life eating cereals or soy grown on deforested rainforest land. 
The grassland on pasture for life farms is important for capturing and storing carbon and can be very biodiverse. If we are serious about sticking to our nation's pledges to get to net zero by 2050 and to protect 30% of the UK's land by 2030, it is clear we have to consume significantly less meat and dairy produce. Indians eat less than four kilograms of meat per capita per year, and it would be a brave Brit who claimed our food was more delicious than theirs. Meat and dairy must become occasional and expensive treats bought only from regenerative farms and those that improve ecosystems and biodiversity, such as those accredited by Pasture for Life. This shift in meat's provenance will be harder for the poorest in society as the farm shop's mouth-watering ribeye steak, red, marbled and delicious, cost an eye-watering £35 per kilogram. Compare this with £14.62 per kilo at Lidl or £18.73 at Tesco and you see the impossibility of farming more sustainable meat without pricing out most people most of the time. As a loose comparison, by the way, you'd get the same amount of protein from £5.20's worth of fava beans, although that might be quite a gassy feast. Altering our diet will lower emissions, reduce pollution and deforestation, and free up land for wildlife and planting trees while producing more food in our country and protecting our food security. These are all positive things, but appealing to people's goodwill alone won't change enough quickly enough. As long as industrial farming is allowed to produce cheap food with no punishment for wrecking the environment, there is little hope for shifting consumer behaviour. The hidden costs of all the damage Negative externalities, in economics jargon, need to be factored into food prices as a syntax to repair the mess and speed up change. The second thing we must do is change the way we farm, undoing the mistakes of recent decades. James Rebanks writes passionately about both his farming life and his love of nature in English pastoral. His grandfather taught him to work the land the old way, but he has witnessed how much has gone wrong since then. He warns that the current economics of farming are such that almost no genuinely sustainable farming is profitable at present. Farming for nature is economic suicide. Many farmers, like Rebanks, want to be commercially viable while also caring for the land they treasure. We have to help them to move towards food being a byproduct of conservation rather than an apocalyptic obliterator of nature. Rebanks points the finger at us as being part of the problem with our demand for cheap food and being strangers to the fields that feed us. My weekly outings are an attempt to change that dislocation in myself. Of course, my observations only scratch the surface and there is no single solution. Farms need to start producing food in sustainable ways, ranging from intensive greenhouses to nature-led upland farms with low livestock densities. The key 
is to use each area of land in the best specific way possible. That means apples here and wheat there. It means rewilding here and organic there. Regenerative agriculture that heals soil, cleans water and increases biodiversity is vital for our future. It swaps ploughing for direct drilling and uses cover crops, crop rotation and mob grazing to care for the soil. That's short duration grazing with extended recovery periods. The Pontbren project in Wales is a good example of farmer-led regeneration that improves both nature and business. It takes an innovative approach to woodland management and tree planting to improve the efficiency of upland farming. The good news for the vegan haters is that livestock plays a small but important role in this future of farming. As the regenerative agriculture slogan goes, it's not the cow, it's the how. Where farmland isn't suitable for growing plants for people to eat, low levels of livestock can help with agroforestry that combines trees with crops and animals, with rotational farming and fertilising, and to help increase biodiversity in habitats. The wildflower meadows we treasure, but have almost completely lost, for example, depend upon low-density, occasional grazing from livestock. Imagining all these positive futures for farming makes me very excited. The third change needed is to support farmers properly in the transition to sustainable agriculture. Subsidies have long been allocated according to land area or number of animals, regardless of their environmental damage. It makes more sense to back farmers who fix nature rather than wreck it. Yet the world still subsidises harmful agriculture and fossil fuel industries to the tune of £1.3 trillion each year. Farmers are the custodians of our countryside, responsible for far more land than our national parks or nature reserves. But they need meaningful backing if we want them to grow food, reduce emissions, plant trees, clean up rivers and rewild land to mop up carbon. We must start funding farmers to safeguard our natural capital and provide public goods that include not only the food we expect, but also the other things we value, such as nature, beauty, heritage and connection. The government has recently introduced environmental land management schemes, ELMS, for landscape recovery, countryside stewardship and sustainable food production. But farmers point out that the numbers rarely add up and can be little more than greenwashing. Yet, if done well, Elms could help farmers rescue nature as well as feeding us. Supporting positive work in this way complements punishing harmful practices. Policy needs to blend laws, subsidies and taxes. Ban the pollution of rivers. Subsidise hedgerow restoration. Tax unsustainable foods. This is all vital if healthy, Sustainable food is to be affordable for everyone, while also tackling our commitments to reach net zero by 2050. It is amazing to think 
that when we sit down for dinner this evening, we make personal choices related to the public health crisis, nature and the climate, as well as sending a message to supermarkets and politicians about what matters to us. Feeling somewhat overwhelmed by all these issues, I bought a local apple and left the farm shop. My biggest hope when I saw today's grid square on the map had been the opportunity for a bracing winter dip in a lake created in a flooded quarry. I headed straight there from the farm shop, but was disappointed to find the water barricaded by fences and barbed wire. Signs every few yards warned of lake safety, danger deep water, no swimming and no unauthorised fishing. You do need to be cautious when swimming in old quarries, but the fence that separated me from the natural world stopped me from making my own decisions. I turned away, frustrated. Later research revealed I could have swum in the lake in a neighbouring grid square, so long as I followed lots of rules, signed some paperwork, paid £30 for an induction course, and then another £7.50 for my dip. That's not my kind of swimming, although the venue is a fantastic regeneration project and a sign of the growing appetite for people to swim, stand up paddleboard and canoe. This map was regularly making me consider the many sides involved in land access arguments. I was searching for nature, but kept being forced onto roads or sandwiched on narrow footpaths, squeezed between high fences. I wanted to get into an area of woodland where old pits had scrubbed over since the quarry closed, but that too was cordoned off. I could only peek through the fence at a spot where someone had lobbed a TV and a raw chicken into the bushes. So I turned my curiosity to the human world instead. Among the KFC cartons and monster cans on the pavements was a discarded prescription box of Tadalafil, a medicine apparently used to treat erection problems. It cautioned, check with your doctor before taking Tadalafil if you have a curved penis. Sellotape to lampposts were adverts for a circus, a cat that had now been missing for 18 months, a music event from last summer featuring a barn dance in a barn, a tattoo artist in the city, and the local branch of Slimming World. Your slimming success starts here. And I smiled at an angry note propped against a discarded dog poo bag, ranting, Who left this here is an idiot. The bin is 50 yards away. I was close to conceding defeat on this grid square, where more than two-thirds of the open space was sealed off. I scrambled through a patch of overgrown thicket, bashing through birch saplings and nettles until I forced my way out of the chaos into a field of barley. The farmer had left a margin of fallow land around the edge, as even a metre-wide strip helps wildlife. As if to prove this, I came upon a fox deep in thought, I stood stock still, and it was several seconds before the fox spotted me. Then it, too, froze, eyeballing me from twenty yards as we dared each other to make the first move. My furry friend cracked first and dashed into the safety of the undergrowth. Birds such as grey partridges, white throats, yellow hammers and corn buntings nest in these wild margins, as well as harvest mice and voles, that provide food for kestrels and barn owls. These small hunting grounds away from roadsides 
also decrease the number of owls killed by cars. I followed a sunken track up into some woods. I heard a squirrel chatter, a buzzard mewing, and, as always in this shire, the thrum of a motorway. This morning, I had made the foolish mistake of checking my emails before coming out. After having a quick play on a rope swing hanging from a high bough, I sat down to drink my flask of coffee and eat my apple beneath a majestic beech tree. But thinking about my emails overshadowed my appreciation of the crisp, peaceful day. A message from my accountant had warned of a steady downturn in my fortunes. I was still earning enough, so my brain was not worrying about cash, but rather my dwindling motivation to hustle, to chase, to succeed. I've been doing the same sort of thing for so long now. <laughs> I hesitate to call it work. Go on adventures, write about them, earn some money. But what would happen if I changed tack? What if I did something else? Should I keep going or change course? I had no idea. My priorities had been evolving for a while, suggesting it was time to switch direction. But I was not sure which way to go, nor brave enough to find out. There was a hollow inside me that my expeditions used to fill, and I didn't know what would take their place, which was probably why I was sitting on my own in a wood with no warmth to do anything beyond trying to enjoy this morning and this grid square. I was languishing through this season of my life, wintering like the bare beech tree I was leaning against. Maybe it might teach me something if I sat long enough and listened. I thought of the unusual Old English word dust sheawung, a consideration of the dust, or the contemplation of what we have lost and the transience of things. It reminded me not to fret too much about my email worries, and instead to savour this hot coffee, this cold morning, and this enormous tree reaching out above me and around me.